Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sonny, for, for sorting that. And um, it's so good to, um, to see you all. And hello at home. I hope you have a cup of tea in hand at the moment. Am I on, on OK, Joe? Yeah, brilliant. My stoky tones are coming through. That's great. It's great for everyone, isn't it? Um, well, as the guy said, we're, um, oh, we're back here today. Let's, let's bring this forward. Let's do something radical. We're a church on the move. Prophetically symbolized. There we go. <laughs> Um, I, the guy said we're, we're in a, um, a series in the book of Amos, um, which if you're new to the Bible is uh, in the Old Testament, everything uh, pre-Jesus. And we're, um, he, was, um, he was a shepherd, like a, a shepherd manager, I suppose. He was from the, uh, from the south, but he had gone up to the north to a, um, a, a kingdom called Israel, uh, still part of the, the people of God. And he was um, giving a message to them uh, with, with four uh, sessions uh, out of seven in, so uh, we're past halfway. I do promise it will get a little bit more upbeat in times to come. It's pretty kind of full-on stuff. End of August, I can promise, when Josh and Callum uh, cover the end of chapter nine, I can promise upbeat at that time. Until then, we'll do, we'll do what we can. Um, but um, I, it's, it's been great just kind of hearing, um, many of us never heard teaching from, uh, from the book of Amos before. And so just the, the feedback that's come as we've been going in, into this. Um, all scripture is God-breathed and, and God-inspired, and, and that means all of it. And so it's really good just to kind of explore um, I, some of the kind of harder bits, or what, why is God's um, saying through Amos um, what, what he's saying. And um, I suppose four out of seven in, it might be good for a, a quick sort of recap of his, where we've been so far. We've seen that the whole thing is framed as this, this roar, if you like, from uh, God's dwelling place. Zion is the, the, the words that's used. But as Amos spoke to the people, it's, it's like a sort of a, a declaration, a roaring uh, from God that then points forward to another roar uh, from the dwelling place of, of, of God, which was in Jesus himself on the cross, where he uh, paid for our sin, where he made us right with him. And that in turn then points forward to uh, one day when God will roar from his dwelling place once again when Jesus returns to take us to be with him forever and uh, makes every right wrong. Uh, every wrong right. We better get that the right way around, didn't we? Um, we've, we've learned that um, God is a God who uh, cares deeply about righteousness, right living, if you like, and, um, and justice, which is right treatments. He's a God who cares about our character. So um, sometimes he will lovingly uh, discipline us to, to shape us. Um, though uh, when we put our trust in Jesus, we can know that we do not need to face his condemnation or his judgment any longer. Jesus has absorbed that in himself. So we sometimes are disciplined because we are loved, just like a parent uh, with a child. We've, we've seen how God cares about our, our holiness. So he asks us to repent, to turn away from the things that we try and put into his place. Uh, Amos framed it like this, to seek the Lord and live at the um, start of chapter five, which we're in the second half of um, today. And, and, and actually, um, I, I suppose this sense of seek the Lord and live is ultimately why this judgment is, is coming uh, on the people of God. There's always a missional aspect to it, that God is, is, is bringing his people back to him, calling them back to covenant relationship with him as, as he intended. So we get into the heart of the message now, I suppose. And um, if we were to kind of go a little bit more modern and start talking about the live stream that would have been present as, um, as Amos was speaking, you can imagine all of the kind of, using the modern day, all the emojis that would be coming up as Amos was delivering um, his message. I have no doubt the angry face emoji would be prominent as uh, the people weren't particularly receptive to what he was saying. Probably the wave goodbye, as in, please, can you get off Amos? Thanks very much. The fuming red face 
I've never used this, but I think this is when you're really, really angry about something. I want a fuming red face on it. Um, uh, the ones with steam coming out, do people use those? I don't know when the right time to use that is, apart from boiling a kettle. So just someone let me know afterwards. Apparently, there is a symbol. Callum's laughing, because he probably knows. He knows I'm a little bit out of touch, and he's going to sort me out afterwards. There is, a, there is a, a, an anger symbol emoji. Maybe that would, would have been used. I don't know who gets to decide these things. But the one that definitely would have been lacking, one of the most common, is, of course, the heart. There would have been very little love for um, what Amos was saying. And so were a dopamine-craving Amos to go to his social media and try and kind of check the reaction, I suspect he would have been disappointed. Now, in our emojified culture, the use of this heart symbol, this heart emoji, I think it's a little bit unclear. Because you get Instagram and Twitter and TikTok where it's the only option. So it can kind of mean anything from like, meh, to this is incredible. I absolutely love this. Whereas on like Facebook or Slack or WhatsApp, it's, it's one of kind of several options. And so clearly sort of indicates more love. Though, of course, I've come to understand that if you really want to communicate love for something, you don't put it as an emoji you put the emoji in the text box. So you get one of those massive hearts that takes up like half your phone screen or whatever is, uh, is being set. So much is communicated by the symbol of that one little organ of the body. And it's the same in our wider culture, isn't it? We talk of being um, heart sick or heartbroken. We talk of a sweetheart. We can be heartened, or we can give hearty greetings, or eat hearty foods. Um, something can be heartfelt or heartless. Um, there's so much chat around about heart disease and its causes, aren't there? Um, the start of the Euros were dominated by a heart attack for, uh, during one of the games of, of, of one of the players. Um, there's heart radio. Hey, here in Nottingham, there's even a heart church. A great place, great relationship with, with those guys. But, but the variation in this usage indicates two things about the heart. The first one is its importance. So we think about its centrality, its role in the body, its the seat of activity, if you like. And the second thing is that the heart, its state, can go either way. It can be warm or cold, good or bad. It can be happy or, or sad, healthy or unhealthy. And actually, the myriad of Bible references to the heart testify to this too. I've just been reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew recently. We're going to spend a bit of time in it um, as a church in the next academic year. And even just in Matthew, it's the pure in heart who see God. It's, uh, our hearts follow where we put our money. Uh, the heart can be the place of evil intent or the place where we, uh, from which we love God, uh, love God and um, forgive others. Uh, if we're tired, we're to come to Jesus uh, because of his gentle and lowly heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Uh, Jesus used parables to um, reveal to some and confound others because of their hardness of heart or because their hearts were far from him. You, you can go on and on. And actually, that is just 5% of what the New Testament says or 1% of what the whole Bible says on the heart. It was the Canadian pastor, Oswald J. Smith, who summed it up like this. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Now, why am I telling you this in a series on Amos? Well, because biblically, medically, and culturally, what goes on in our hearts 
defines everything else. And Amos spoke to a people whose hearts had wandered far from God. Their hearts were cold, they were sick, the the overflow of them, the activity, if you like, absolutely stank. And actually, the the actions of of these people that Amos spoke to, they they function as like a spiritual health check against our own lives. It's an example by contrast, if you like. And so I'm going to read the the second half of Amos 5, where we are today, and just to kind of help our understanding as as we jump straight into it, the the clue as as we go through it is, is to ask, what is going on with the hearts of the people that leads God through Amos to say these things. So here we are. This is Amos chapter 5. We're reading from verse 18, and it's up on the screen or on your screens at home. Here's what he says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and uh, lent his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. So that sounds like slapstick comedy to us, doesn't it? Like Charlie Chaplin-esque. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? How about these words? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Reminds me of when we first tried worship over Zoom and everyone was unmuted. (laughs) Take it away. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and key on your star gods, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, what's going on here? Let's have a look at what's going on. The first thing is that their hearts were not repentant. Now, if we're to understand, uh, particularly at verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? What we need to know is that this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a a phrase that gets used uh, several times in Scripture. Uh, Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes it's to do with the people of God themselves. Sometimes it's the surrounding nations. But it refers to a time where God was going to come in power and establish his kingdom in a visibly demonstrative way. And what um, the, the, the people at the time were taking it to mean was, was sort of with political connotations, where they w- would be saying like, God will make our borders huge. God will make our nation great and multiply all across the earth. And so actually what was going on was that as Amos challenged them about their behavior, about their heart attitude to God, they were saying, hey, Amos, you just need to chill out a little bit. The day of the Lord is coming. And all these things that you are saying that we, that, that we need to kind of sort out, you don't need to worry. The day of the Lord is coming. They were unrepentant in their hearts. And so actually, what should have been a positive hope of God coming as the king to establish his kingdom, actually, for them, was ending up, as verse 19 refers to, inescapable judgment. 
He is a God who does not let the wrong in the world just go. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, that is tremendous comfort for all that is wrong in the world and the things that have been done to us and the injustice. And also, it's absolutely terrifying because neither are we perfect too. And that's why we need Jesus to take away our sin. The second thing is that their hearts were not engaged. So look at verse 21 onwards. This is the, I hate, I despise your feasts, but it's full on, isn't it? And um, it's worth noting, verse 21, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Um, that, that refers to um, a, a foul odor that is going up to heaven. So it's to do with smell. Verse 22 talks about, I will not look upon your offerings Uh, And then verse 23 about the songs talks about, I will not listen. So we've got the smell, we've got the look, we've got the listen. God is shutting down to them. Such is the state of their hearts. And yet they were were just doing the stuff. Like They were doing the feasts, they were doing the sacrifices, doing the, the offerings, singing the songs. And yet they lacked a heart that was sold out for God. And um, it's picked up in verse 25. It's a slightly confusing verse saying, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? To which the answer is yes, yes, they did. But the point and what it's meaning is that simply to, to bring the sacrifices, bring the offerings to God in itself was not everything. It was part of a much wider system of covenant relationship. And when they were doing these things without their hearts being in it, being one to God, they were just doing the stuff. They were just going through the motions. Reminds you of those words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's never enough just to do the stuff, just to turn up on the Sunday or be part of the home group or just be on the serving team. Like it's, it's not about that. It's about the heart engaged with Jesus. Billy Smith and Frank Page, who I think sound like a couple of fun musicians, more than two dry theological commentators, but they have written a very helpful commentary on Amos nonetheless. And so Billy and Frank, there's what they say. They were inundating him with rivers of religiosity when he simply wanted rivers of righteousness. And instead, what God asked for in verse 24, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice is about doing what's biblically right, especially on, on behalf of the vulnerable or those who've been wronged. It's core to who we are because it's who God is. And whether that is racial justice, criminal justice, social justice, environmental justice, whatever it might refer to, it's who we are because it's who he is. Righteousness is rightness. It's about right living. It's about us making godly decisions and having godly character because we are God's people. And actually, when you put the two terms together, justice and righteousness, the commentators agree, and Billy and Frank are on board too, so we're on good ground, that righteousness is about inner life and justice is about outer life. And so the phrase together, righteousness and justice, really is talking about all of our lives in every aspect and facet lived for Jesus. 
The point that, we, that Amos is trying to make here is that you can't have a heart that is ablaze for Jesus that does not produce justice and righteousness. And likewise, justice and righteousness cannot be produced without a heart that is set on fire for the purposes of God. And he, and he asks that, that um, righteousness would be like an ever-flowing stream. The word there literally is, um, in English, refers to a wadi. Now, that's a geographical term. I don't know what your relationship with geography um, is like, kind of how you found it through school or navigating maps or whatever. Uh, my first ever geography lesson in high school, 11 years old, uh, we had to draw a map um, of, uh, from our home to the school. And uh, the teacher kind of did it on, on the board to show us uh, what was happening. Trouble was, I live round the corner from the teacher. And so basic didn't sort of grab my attention from the off. And from there, I never really got on with it. So I have no clue what a wadi is or was. But apparently, it refers to a, a valley or a ravine, typically in some of the Arab-speaking countries, um, that is dry for most of the year, except in rainy season, when it gushes forth water. And so what Amos is, is talking about here is the consistency of their life in God. God's saying, I don't just want you to gush forth water in the, in the rainy season. I want in the whole year round a heart that is set on fire. He's talking about our worship as being like a lifestyle more than it is an event. And actually, the, the Canaanite religion that, that the Israelites had gotten mixed up in was one that said, hey, you can basically do what you like, with whom you like, where you like, whatever you like. Just turn up to the festivals. Just be at the feasts, and you will get right with the gods. If you just show up, then it's okay. And it infiltrated into their life, such that Israel was sadly lacking justice and righteousness in their inner life with their holiness, their purity their singular devotion, their God-centeredness, and in their outer life, in the trampling of the poor, the lack of ethics in their justice system, their greed, their indulgence. It's pretty depressing stuff, isn't it, to, to see the state of the human heart. That quote from um, that Canadian pastor really comes true, isn't it? The, pr the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And actually, um, the French theologian, John Calvin, um, picked this up with, with the third thing which was going on, which was that their hearts were producing all sorts of idols. And um, Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. And we've seen the futility of their approach in verse 25, where they just think, oh, if we just offer the sacrifices, I'm sure you know, it'll be fine and kind of satisfy God. And even in verse 26, you shall take up Sikath your king and key on your star god, your images that you made for yourselves and I'll send you into exile beyond Damascus. They were worshiping, in this case, the local astral deities, but, um, but, but I suppose symptomatically, the fact that when, when our hearts lack justice and righteousness, when they're, they're not engaged, actually we don't let Jesus define the whole of life, and we tend to put ourselves in the center instead and, and kind of project from there. And we make idols out of um, all sorts of otherwise good things, in an effort to satisfy this kind of life's all about me idea. And you know, we, we can look at Israel, unrepentant, disengaged, idolatrous, their hearts cold and sick, or as the Bible would term it, a heart of stone. And we just think, silly old Israel. Now, come on, we've seen the story. God's done so much for you. He's brought you out of slavery. He's continued to keep coming to you. He sent you prophet after prophet throughout the whole story, and you're still not turning to him. 
And yet, what we're meant to see here initially is, is some kind of checklist that asks us the hard questions too. Like, are we quick to repent? Do we properly live in the light of the day of the Lord, where Jesus will come to uh, take us to be with him forever? And um, there'll be eternal rewards for choosing him in every, every situation, such that we can have hope in that day being brought into the present day. Do we find ourselves operating in religiosity or going through the motions? Are our hearts properly engaged with Jesus? This is God's standard. This is God's perfect law. What are the idols in our lives? Who defines our life? Is it us? Is it him? But we have to read this passage knowing that Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection in our place for our sin has given us a new heart. And 200 years later, the prophet Ezekiel was to prophesy in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. And he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I've been struggling with that word all week. Someone can tell me how to say that after. And from your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, this, this passage in Amos uh, chapter 5 actually was, was quoted later on in, in the biblical story by Stephen, one of the leaders in, in the early church in Acts um, chapter 7. And, and, and he kind of plots the story of the people of God culminating in Jesus, the righteous one. And up till now, the reading of the passage is, has kind of just become like a, about moral standard, where we have a look on it and, and all we see is, is our own failure in it. And so if, if we're not careful, we can think that the solution is just to go away and try harder. Never works, does it? Whatever it's to do, the things in this passage or, or anything else. But when we look at this through the lens of the New Testament, as we're supposed to do as New Testament believers, just look at the hope that arises. We had verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Well, now the day of the Lord becomes not some fearful darkness, but as Malachi used the phrase in the scriptures, it becomes a day when Jesus himself absorbed the darkness on our behalf. As verse 20 talks of the darkness that was promised so that the light of the resurrection, the new life of the resurrection could come. And now in the New Testament, as we were saying, that the day of the Lord becomes about the certain return of Jesus to take his people to be with him forever. And it inspires a life of devotion, which if you remember Israel, we're totally ignoring in anticipation of that day. Have a look in this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we hope. Or even verse 19 in, in the Amos passage, the one about kind of uh, fleeing from the lion and then being met by the bear or the guy with a hand on his wall in a house and the serpent bit him. Well, Jesus is the one who promises our protection. 
that he'll never leave us and he'll, he'll never forsake us. And, and he does it by trampling the head of the serpent, Satan himself, and preventing his deathly bites. Or you see in verse 21, the bit, I hate, I despise your feasts and all the offerings and the sacrifices. Well, Jesus now causes the Father to delight in us by the pleasing aroma. Remember it stank before? The pleasing aroma of his sacrifice. He causes the Father to look on us with love, with delight. He, he gives us a new song. Remember, take away from me the noise of your songs. Well, now Jesus gives us a new song. And he inspires works of justice and righteousness in our lives through the ever-flowing river, through the wadi of the Holy Spirit, who now calls us to bring the sacrifices of our lives to him. Or even verse 27, he was sent into exile on our behalf so that we could know the Lord's, the God of hosts. You, you can go on, take every single line of this passage and Jesus redeems it. Jesus gives us hope. We are in him now. We're new creations. We have a new heart, a fleshly heart that, that receives conviction of sin, but then repents. A heart that is engaged with God because he sustains us. A heart that is set on him and sets aside all else. That is who we are. It is indisputable. It is unbreakable. It is unshakable. I once heard a worship leader finish that sentence with undoable. It didn't quite work in quite the same way. And what it means is that every time we read this, a passage like this, and every time we think, in my day-to-day -day walk, I'm barely conscious of eternity. Or in my day-to-day -day walk, I, I know I find myself going through the motions sometimes. Or in my life with Jesus, I know there's all sorts of idols in my life. Or actually, even things outside of this passage, I, I wish I was different in this area. I wish I felt like less of a failure in this area. I wish I could improve in this. I wish I could get breakthrough in these things that are dominating my life. This, every time we see those things, the solution is not to try harder. It's not to sort ourselves out. It's not to go away and just do some self-improvement. The solution is to recognize who we are and to come back to the one who defines us, who gives us this heart, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And that's actually what Amos was trying to do, like calling them to do. He phrased it, seek the Lord and live. I was um, speaking at the, um, the 12 o'clock service that we run on, on a Wednesday here, and um, it's going really well, kind of uh, numbers starting to get back up post-lockdown, uh, post real sense of family and community. They're, they're off on a trip to Skeg uh, next week, two weeks' time. Two weeks' time. There you go. Thanks, Phil. And um, just a brilliant kind of sense of family uh, there. And um, I, I, I noticed that it was a great sense of family. When um, the, um, it, uh, the, the morning of, of the service, I was just upstairs in the office. We got this buzz, uh, buzz on the buzzer outside. And I, I didn't answer it. It was, it was someone else. But uh, reported the conversation back to me. It said, um, do you keep any money on the premises overnight? And um, the girl on the phone said, no, I don't keep any money here. I was like, oh. That's a shame because um, I'm a gang leader and I want to rob the place. And um, anyway, so she just put the phone down on him. And I thought, well, the back door's open downstairs. There's quite a lot of equipment around. There's a few people working in offices by themselves, dotted around the building. And 
Um, I better just like check it's okay. It wouldn't be unusual for um, something like that, someone to be around the building, just it's the blessing of the location we're in. And uh, so went, went downstairs and not entirely sure what, um, what or who I would encounter. And so, so just let um, the welcome team who's starting to settle know, at which one of them just started smirking and giggling. And um, it was only one of the welcome team who was like playing some prank outside, just trying to get out of the building, wasn't it? And you think kind of, that is family. That, like, that's, that's together, how we can kind of have that sense of joy and um, feedback to one another about how we enter the building. Um, but at, at that service, I was, um, I, I was preaching on the end of John chapter 6. And um, I, I just want to read it to you because it, it really makes, makes this point about coming back to Jesus well. Um, and uh, Jesus has been teaching uh, his followers, a wide group of people, but some of them have found what he's saying hard, and some of them have expressed the kind of, I don't really understand what's happening, the sense of why, and we were just recognizing that that's a, a common feeling in the Christ, Christian life, isn't it? We, we, we live with questions of why, we live with not knowing exactly what the Lord's doing in certain situations, and um, it says in John 6, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And we were just recognizing how easy it is to go back to a former life, to the things that we, uh, we put as ultimate things um, in our lives until we came to see uh, the incredibleness of Jesus. And um, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that, that phrase has just been living with me all week. Like, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when we get stuck in the Christian walk, we need only turn to him. His word has power. And when we see the conviction of sin that arises from a passage like this, this has been my week. I spent my devotional time one week this morning, uh, one day this, uh, this week, just just praying through, God, I, I want to be more conscious of the hope that I have in you of eternity. God, I want my heart to be engaged. I don't just want to go through the motions. God, I don't want there to be idols in my life. I want to live only for you. When we live in the kind of conviction of sin that can arise, we need only go to the one whose words have power. And so in grace, we have to ask ourselves, when was the last time we Ask the Spirit to, to reveal areas in our life and deliberately repent it. If we find ourselves going through the motions, relationship with Jesus not really featuring, are we actually going to turn to Jesus and remind ourselves of who we truly are? What is going to happen to those idols in our lives? Have we asked Jesus what deliberate action steps he would like us to take? Let's come to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's repent where our actions don't match up to our identity. And as Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll finish with this. Maybe Gus and the band can come up as we read this. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. We're going to um, sing briefly in, in response just to let these things uh, wash over. So why don't we stand to our feet?